How are you guys tonight? You got personal problems here? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's okay, so good to have you. I, I, I thank you for letting me have last week off. I moved, and um, actually we started moving last Monday and finished. We're not finished, but we are, we are um, probably 90% of the way done. Now it's all that 10% of stuff you just wish you could torch, you know, and, um, but you can't. So how are you guys doing? Good. One, next week's our last week. Then, then comes Good Friday. I mean, then comes um, Easter week. So, yeah. yeah. So, you guys, just the, the, the piping scheme behind me, just to remind us, since two weeks off is um, a long time to remember things, that God has revealed himself, and what he revealed was written into the original documents called the, called the, the, um, the um, autographs. And, and we believe those were 100% exactly what God revealed and inspired. Inspired at a level of inerrant and infallible. But we're talking about the Bibles in our hands. How reliable are they? And can we call them the inspired word of God? <clears throat> and obviously the originals are no longer with us. They were copied time and time again. And then we have how many of those in the New Testament? No, no, no. How many books in the New Testament? 27. Okay, we'll just do that. How many books in the Old Testament? 39. New Testament, 27. 39, 3 times 9 equals? Yes. So, anyways, but, but we have over 5,800 manuscripts that, of the Greek New Testament that are copies. And, but since you don't read Greek or Hebrew, that's to be translated into your language. And so my argument is from the, what God has revealed through the original manuscripts that were copied, then translated, the Bible's in your hands, we can um, confidently say is the inspired word of God. Just like Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. Timothy, the Bible you were raised on, that you got saved from, that as a child, it's inspired by God. So that's where we're on this process, looking at English translations. And English is probably the most blessed language on the, in the world from a Bible translation perspective because we have endless Bible translations, endless. Um, so what we're looking at here now is the history of the English Bible. And I handed the notes out again because I did a few little revisions. I, I saw how horrible my spelling was, and that ticked me off. So I um, fixed it, and I separated some of the papers for a handout. So I want you to keep the history of the English Bible handout that's two-sided next to you. If you're watching online, you have this in your notes from last week. I just printed it separate today. Last week, I suggested you rip it out of the notes. And I want you to follow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through my notes. I want you to keep this next to you. If you want to follow through my notes with me, and I don't really want to read to you, but sometimes I'm going to, just to give you the drama of what's going on with the English Bible. Because do you remember who the first English Bible translator was? What was that, Mark? Yes, Wycliffe. Wycliffe was. And he was in the 14th century. And he didn't translate from Greek and Hebrew. He translated from Latin. And it was, it was 100 years later that we now get into the English translations that come from Greek and Hebrew. And, and when Wycliffe had translated that, it caused huge trouble. He was seen as a heretic. And he was not put to death. He died, naturally. But 
Later, his bones were dug up and burned and thrown into, I think it was the Thames River, and as, as a sign of this man was evil. So it's an interesting climate that you're in a country that is Christian, run by the Catholic Church, or the, the, the predominant religion is Catholicism. The monarchy is Catholic, and someone translates the Bible into the language of the people, and he is um, considered an evil heretic. So it's just an interesting um, political, social time we are in from Wycliffe all the way up to King James. So with that, we're going to talk about Tyndale today. And um, we'll start with Tyndale. So if you're in that handout on page 12, if, not, if you want to follow with my notes, then we're going to be on page 7. Where'd page 7 go? Right there. Um, so William Tyndale... Remember, you guys remember what the constitutions of Oxford were back in 1408? Well, Oxford University, they met there, the, 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 the church and government leaders met there and came up with these constitutional statements saying you could not translate the Bible in English, you could not own an English Bible translation and have nothing to do with Wycliffe or any of his writings because if you did, then you would be condemned as a heretic. So in 1408, which is um, 20, 20 years or so after Wycliffe died, they said this because Wycliffe, Wycliffe was still very influential. Now we jump 100 years to Tyndale, and the constitutions of Oxford are still in effect. You're not allowed to translate the Bible. You're not allowed to own Wycliffe's Bible. But how many of you, when you're told not to do something, you still want to do it anyways? Go ahead. Raise your hand. Your mom's not watching. <laughs> um, well, especially when it comes to the Word of God, so people are still going to do it. So enter Wycliffe, and, and I was thinking of you guys when I was reading this today. Wycliffe graduated from Oxford University with a bachelor's degree at 17 years old. Three years later, he graduated with a master's degree. So this is a brilliant young man, brilliant young man. And he was deeply influenced by Erasmus. Do you remember who Erasmus is? Erasmus was the Catholic scholar and monk and a Renaissance man who had compiled the Greek New Testament and published it. And it is what these translators are using to bring it into English. So Erasmus was a church reformer, and Wycliffe was great, and excuse me, Tyndale was greatly um, influenced by him. So because it's illegal, he goes to Germany. And in Germany, he's influenced by Luther's translation. Now, Luther is seen as a heretic by England because Luther's left the Catholic Church. And, and what church is predominant in England? The Catholic Church. So Luther is a bad guy. Tyndale goes over there, is influenced by Luther. In fact, the table of contents that Tyndale's Bible was published, or was put in the same order as Luther's Bible. Remember we talked about how Luther didn't like the book of James, didn't like the book of Revelation, didn't like the book of Hebrews, put them at the end. Tyndale did the same thing. Does that say Tyndale didn't like those books, or was that simply he was copying Luther's table of contents? We don't know. But So Tyndale translates two editions, and as we're going to go today from Tyndale all the way to the King James Version, I hope. I hope we get that far today. Tyndale's version, 90% of Tyndale's version ends up in the King James so keep that in mind as we talk about how much Tyndale is hated and how, but his version is constantly used as a revision of each version down the line. So are you with me on that? 
Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and according to F.F. Bruce, the best 90% of the King James is Tyndale's translations. So if you want to, you can, I have all the examples of translations. We did that last time. They're very repetitive. Remember doing that, how hard it was? You guys read them for me. Yes, yeah, so, so they were, um, all right, we'll look at them in a bit. Um, but so as we go from Tyndale, he's martyred in 1536. And it's kind of funny because on, on October, October 6th, this past October 6th was the anniversary of him being murdered. And it was all over Facebook. People were putting up these little memes of, if they're called memes, of how he was burned alive on the stake for translating the Bible in English. And that's not true. He wasn't burned alive. It's, it's, he was, um, not that this is better. He's tied to a stake, and the executioner comes up and strangles him to death. Then his body is burned. Now, who wants the job to strangle people to death? I mean, think about it. Who say, man, I'm going to apply for that job. But that, that's what happened to him. Because he was a Bible translator into English, he was put to death, strangled to death, and then his body burned. And his dying words were, Lord, open up the king of England's eyes. And, and so as you go next, we're going to look at Coverdale. If you're on this sheet here, the history of the English Bible, Look at the different translations. So, so Tyndale is second edition, 1534. Does everybody see that? Then look at Coverdale, 1535. Matthew Bible, 1537. Great Bible, 1539. Next page, Geneva Bible, 1560. The Bishop's Bible, 1568. Douay Reims, we'll talk about that, a Catholic version. And then King James is 1611. So, so really from Tyndale till... The Bishop's Bible, 30 years. And we're going to find that each one of those translations we just mentioned are almost entirely Tyndale's Bible. So he's murdered for something that becomes almost immediately legal. It's kind of how things work sometimes. You know, the martyr changes things. Um, but someone has to be martyred for things to change. So Coverdale, Coverdale... Tyndale was unaware that King James, or King Henry VIII, had already given permission for a Bible to be circulated throughout England, and Myers, Miles Coverdale was the one commissioned to translate that. And you'll see there are, uh, if you're in my notes, page 9, it says his title was the Bible, that is Holy Scripture of the Old and New Testament, faithfully and truly translated out of, out of the Deutsch. What language is Deutsch? German. And Latin into English. So, so this is... Um, He's not even using Greek and Hebrew at this point, but he will. Now, hold on here. Everyone look at me. Henry VIII was a really fine fellow, wasn't he? Do you know anything about him? Yes, don't roll your eyes, Mark. He was not a good man. He's not a good man. But he hated Martin Luther because Martin Luther stood against the Catholic Church. So Henry VIII actually wrote a tract against Martin Luther. And the Pope gave Henry VIII the title, the Defender of the Faith. Every British monarch still has that title today. From the time of Henry VIII till today, 
the British monarch has the title the defender of the faith. And here's the irony. What did Henry VIII do? He dumped the Catholic Church when they wouldn't let him divorce his wife and started what? The Church of England, the Anglican Church. So it's just as interesting. History's full of ironies because of fallen people. All right, so let's move notes here. He dedicated the Bible to Henry VIII. It's basically Tyndale's translation with some modification from the, from the German and Latin. And he put the Apocrypha, separated it, because, because you see, the Bible's up to this point. The, the um, Catholic Bible, obviously, has the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, and the New Testament. So he now takes the Apocrypha, puts it at the end of the Bible, separates it. And what does that usually mean? When someone's at the very end, separate, what do we call that? A what? An appendix, yeah. We tend to say, okay, that this is important, but it's, we're putting it in the back because it's not all important. And so there's a statement made right there. In all these Bibles that we have, all the way up to the King James, including the King James, had the Apocrypha in it. Sometimes in between the Old and New Testament, and sometimes at the back. And today, your Bibles don't have the Apocrypha. I have here a facsimile of the 1611 King James. And the Apocrypha is in, you got it too? Yeah. And the Apocrypha is in here, in between the Old and New Testament. And it's interesting today, people who are King James only, that only the, six, only the King James is the Word of God, do not want the Apocrypha in the Bible. But if the translators of the King James put it in, and if you're dedicated to the King James, it kind of is a contradiction of, of your commitments and beliefs. But I have a page I'll show you from this in a minute. So let's get back to this. So we went from Matthew's, or the Coverdale Bible, two years later to the Matthew's Bible. And the Matthew Bible is um, a man named John Rogers. That was Matthew, he couldn't do it under his own name because you get in trouble. And by the way, Coverdale was permitted to read in churches. The king approved it, it could be read in churches. So now, two years after Tyndale, Coverdale takes primarily Tyndale's Bible. It's now approved by the king, and people are reading it in churches. And so it's just an interesting thing from you're evil, you deserve to die. Okay, you can read your Bible in English, because King Henry said so. We go from Coverdale, then to the Matthew Bible, and um, it is approved by a king through Cranmer and Cromwell, two big British or, or, or um, English um, rulers of the... Of the um, just went brain dead, of the parliament and the, um, I'm sorry, what? Well, that, that's another story, the crusades, yeah. So, so my brain just went dead, I apologize. But let, let me come back, let me come back to Tyndale. So I'm trying not to read to you, and there's so much information in my head. Tyndale did his first edition. His first edition was the New Testament and partly the Old Testament, and he didn't like it. He wanted to revise it, but he had no money. So the Archbishop of Canterbury went out and bought every edition of Tyndale's Bible, first edition, and burned it as a statement against Tyndale. Bought every edition he could find and burned it. And Tyndale was happy because he got all the money. 
And now he had the money to publish his second edition. So it's just kind of, you know, I see it as God kind of, you know, using the enemy to further the cause. Because Catholic. And, 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 and Tyndale's, Tyndale's footnotes. How many have study Bibles you read today? So you have a study Bible, then you have people who translate the Bible, the translators, then you have the theologians and Bible scholars who come and put notes at the bottom and say, this means this, this means that, and they put a map in there. And, and well, Tyndale's notes at the bottom were brutal, brutal towards the monarchy, brutal towards the Catholic Church. And so his translation was offensive to them, but the notes were more offensive. And so as these translators go on, they take those notes out. Things like, things like um, when, when, oh, oh, the story of, um, it's the king of the Old Testament that did wrong and was um, put to death for it. Well, Henry VIII didn't like that because of the divine right of kings. British kings are always right. So Tyndale would use those kind of things to do jabs at the monarchy. And so he ticked them off. Nonetheless, okay, so we go from Coverdale to Matthew. That's four years after Tyndale's death. Um, the Matthew Bible. <clears throat> and um, it was a revision of Coverdale and Tyndale. <clears throat> and he was martyred by Mary. If you look at the notes on the right, on this page, the... Um, if you look over there, you get to the other side, 1553 to 1558. Um, so Henry starts the Episcopal Church. No, no, not Episcopal. You know what Episcopal is? Episcopal is the American version of the Anglican Church. So Henry starts the Anglican Church. Then eventually he approves Bible reading. Then it goes to... It goes to um, Edward, and Edward was a Protestant. Bibles are allowed. Edward dies. It goes to his sister Mary. And how many of you like Bloody Marys? That's her nickname. Because she kills all the Protestants. And then reverses all the things that Edward did to allow people to read the Bible. And then, and then her sister Elizabeth comes along. And Elizabeth has a very long reign, which she allows Bible translations. So you have all the drama of the, the history of England with the translators. So with that, let's just jump ahead. We get to the, the Matthew Bible, the Great Bible. And the Great Bible is called that. Do you know why? Because it's this big. All right, that's why it's called the Great Bible. No, no other reason, just because it's, it's huge. And, and then it would be chained in churches. And if you see there in my notes on page 12, that... It could not be read out loud during services. So you think about this. People want to hear the Bible. And if you're literate, someone has to read to you. And you go to a service, and think of the liturgy of the Anglican Church. High liturgy. So you have all the different things going on in the service. But then there's a guy over there at the Bible that's chained to the post, reading the Bible to those who can't read. Interrupting the service. So the people don't care about the service. They want to hear the Bible. So a law comes out. You can't read the Bible during church out loud. Um, 
Well, you know, as far as the Catholic Church goes, I, I, don't, I can't answer that. As far as the Catholic Church's practice of reading the epistles and the gospels during services, their services were all in Latin. So I don't know that they read the Bible in Latin. Yeah. But you might be referring to the, the early Greek church would read the Bible through the year, do a law reading, a prophet reading, a gospel, an epistle. Um, that's where we get those manuscripts called lectionaries. So that might be what you're referring to. But the Catholic was in Latin until this century, you know, or the 20th century. Um, The papas? Oh, papas, which, which was the Greek word for pope. Yeah, so I'm not sure what that, I'm not, I never heard of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the Greek, the, the, go to the, the Great Bible. So it's read, it's, it's out loud to read it in church, out loud. Then you have all the different kings shifting from um, Catholic, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant. You get finally to Elizabeth. She reverses the Roman Catholic policies of Mary. And we now have the Geneva Bible. So what country is Geneva in? Switzerland. Switzerland. So now the reformers are getting involved. And, and now the Geneva Bible, which is primarily Tyndale's, has footnotes that are Calvinistic. That, too, the British church doesn't like. In the Geneva Bible, if you could get one today, it's still in print. It's phenomenal footnotes written by, written by the, the, the people we now quote from, you know, 350 years ago. And in Scotland, they had a law where the citizens had to buy the Geneva Bible. Because of John Knox, he, Scotland converted to Calvinism. Because he went to Geneva, converted to Calvinism, came back and led the, the Scottish Reformation. And this is the Bible of the Puritans and the pilgrims. So when they came to America, they didn't bring the King James. King James is not translated yet. They bring the Geneva Bible. And the, the, Pur the Puritans and pilgrims are, 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 are a different group, but similar as far as their beliefs. And they bring the Geneva Bible with them. Lastly is Douay-Rheims Bible. Douay is a town in France, and Rheims is a town in France. You have Catholic British people who have moved there and started an English university. And because of all of the Bible translating going on, because there's now Spanish Bibles, in, uh, uh, Bibles in Spanish, Bibles in French, Bibles in German, all these things are the modern languages, the, the common languages. This university in France decided that we're going to translate the Bible in English to compete with all these English Bibles. It never really caught on. They did it from the Latin, not the Greek and Hebrew. Because remember, Jerome's Vulgate is the authoritative Bible of the Catholic Church. And so they translate from Latin. And, and I want to show you here a translation of it. It's in your, I don't know if it's in your notes or not. Okay, Daryl. Oh, I hate this. We'll come back to that in a minute. Maybe I didn't pull it up. Give me a second. Okay, the Douay Reims. Um, 
Can you see this here, everybody? Can you see the words? Okay. So let me go over here. Let me do this. I'm going to make them really big. So you guys know Acts 2.38, right? Peter said, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right? You know that one. But look how Douay Reims did it from the Latin. But Peter said to them, do penance and be baptized, everyone, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Catholics in here, what's penance? Okay, so she said punishment. Say again. Yeah, so right, it, it, is, it is that, it's right, you, you are now, it's, you know, I want you to go do five Hail, Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers, okay, and, um, and that's kind of a, um, I don't want to say the word payment, because I don't want to misrepresent Catholic theology, but what's the difference between doing penance, you sin, now, now go do these things to be penitent, to prove your penitence, as opposed to that and repent. I'm sorry, Josie. Okay, and obviously I can do five Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers and could care less about whether my heart's changed, you know. Repentance changes the heart, or is a reflection of a changed heart. This comes from Latin. This is one of the verses that actually was in Romans and Galatians that Martin Luther read in the Greek and goes, whoa, it doesn't say do penance. It says repent. So another thing is the idea of Some of these translations were saying, that using the word elder, presbyteros, which is the common word for elder, that the apostle Paul went out in Acts 14, him and, him and Barnabas went and appointed elders in all the new churches. Well, Catholics didn't like that. They ordained them priests in all the churches. Because today, if we went and said, there's an elder of Cornerstone Church, and a priest over at St. Francis. Very different roles, very different roles in the church. And so Douay Reims was not happy with the way they chose certain English words. And so here, here's the funny thing historically, you guys, okay? Greek word presbyteros comes out of Greek into English as elder. But the early Greek church shortened the word presbyteros to what is, was called priest. So the word priest is used very early to refer to an elder. But once the Middle Ages came along, it came into the priest was more the person who was the intermediary between you and God, that you had to go through him to get to God. But early on, when the word presbyteros, for Greek meaning elder, was shortened to, to, and it was translated priest, it wasn't referring to this mediation. It, it was the role of a person leader in the church. Yeah, yeah, the role developed over time. Okay, so, so now, the Geneva Bible, oh, by the way, the Bishop Bible, we didn't get there. The Bishop's Bible was the formal, official translation of the Anglican Church as a response to the Geneva footnotes. But folks... They're all Tyndale. They're all Tyndale. Tyndale is the majority of all of them. So this is why I started out and saying, we have a man who was put to death 
And by 30 years later, 1568, his Bible, almost in its entirety, is now used as the official Bible of the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church didn't exist when he was put to death. But King Henry soon started it. But the official church of the land killed him for doing this, and then they used it as their official Bible. So the irony of, of the, uh, the irony, the drama, the, the suspense, the, the political intrigue, it's really fascinating. And, um, and there's lots of good books on this. They, they give you the whole history. And, and the one I recommended to you was White as the Waters by, um, by um, Bobrick. His last name is Bobrick, I think. My brain's not working today, you guys. Now I want to talk about the King James. Randy, you said you read the King James, right? As a normal rule? You read New King James. But somebody... How many of you have read the King James as a normal Bible? You did. Tristan did. Don't, don't be ashamed. <laughs> Daryl, did you raise your hand? Okay, anyone else? Okay, so, so was that a Bible that your family read or the church you got saved in? Is that what it was? Okay, yeah. It's not as common now. It's still the number one distributed Bible because it's copyright free. That's old statistic. That's probably 15-year-old statistics, and I'm not sure it's true today. It used to be, you guys know who um, Gideon, Gideon Bible people are? They would put King James in all the hotels. And now I think it's NIV. So they've changed. Maybe it's not the number one distributed Bible. What's the number one selling Bible? I told you a couple weeks ago. NIV. But the King James reigned supreme from 1611 for 300 plus years as the primary English Bible that the English-speaking world read. And so let's look at some of the history of it. Oh, darn it. Oh, well, I'm not going to do that. I was going to read to you from a book on the history of the English Bible, a couple of paragraphs by F.F. F. Bruce, but I didn't bring it with me. So it says in my notes there, I'm going to read it to you. I'm not. You know? Um, so, so the Bishop's Bible, the Bishop's Bible has become the common Bible. So notice the Bishop's Bible was in 16 or 1560-ish, right? 1568. We're now in the early 1600s. So 30-something years has gone by, and the Puritan movement has become big. And the Puritans don't like the um, Bishop's Bible. And they're not allowed to use the Geneva Bible you know, in church. And the Puritans were a separatist group, but they were trying not to separate. Eventually they separated, and, and first they went over to Holland, and then they came to America. But So there's a group of, of Christian scholars, some of them Puritans, coming to the king, King James I, who was King James VI in Scotland. Then his brother died in England, and he became the king of all of England and Scotland and called himself King James I. This is Bloody Mary's son. So, and he's very intelligent. He knows his Bible very well. He's a very good theologian. And he approves a Bible to be translated that was known as the Authorized Version. So I just have some notes here I want to rock through it with you. Okay, For, it's called the Authorized Version, the A.V., because it was promoted by King James I. But to be truly authorized, it would need to be an act of parliament, which it never was. It was only called the King James Version in America. 
So if you, if you read British stuff from, from the last generation, they don't say King James, they say the, the authorized version. So it became known over here as the King James, which is kind of funny because I'm not so sure King James is very popular by the early settlement settlers. You know, the, the, the Puritans who came over didn't like them. It's the first English translation to be translated by a committee. Up to this point, it's always one person. One person revises the previous persons, revises the previous persons. You know, Coverdale to Matthew, to, you know, to, 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 to the Great Bible, to the Bishop's Bible. Now we have a committee, 50, I think 54 people, 56 people come together, and they break them into six groups. Three of those groups did the Old Testament, one group did the Apocrypha, and two groups did the New Testament. They divided them up in portions, and then they had revision committees who followed after that. This is how our Bibles are done today. All of the Bibles you read in this room are done by committees, by groups of people, very similar to what King James did. And King James was very prominent in picking those people. So the third bullet point, the bishop's Bible was to be used as the basis for the revision, and any changes were to be in light of the Greek and Hebrew text. So the bishop's Bible is primarily what? Tyndale. So Tyndale, so the King James is not a fresh translation. It's a revision of Bishop's Bible, which is a revision of the Great Bible, which is a revision, just take it all the way back to Tyndale. And so Tyndale is reigning supreme now in the King James. Theodore Beza, the successor to John Calvin, his third edition of 1588-89 was the primary Greek text used in their New Testament translation. So they're using the Bishop's Bible, but when they are, are, are revising it from the Greek, they're using Beza's third edition. All right? Now, Beza's third edition was made up of approximately 12 Greek manuscripts that were dated between the 12th and the 16th century. This is important because do you remember our geographical areas? We talked about the Greek manuscripts. I put the map up there, and you had the Alexandrian area where a lot of the manuscripts were found in the desert. Those are the oldest ones we have. You have the Western manuscripts, which are the ones found in Western Europe. And then you have the Byzantine manuscripts, which are the majority of them, which are found in the Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, that area, Macedonia. Those are the ones that these guys are using. Because you see, when, when Constantinople fell to the Turks, the Christian scholars came west and brought their manuscripts with them. And that's the one these Greek scholars are using to translate into English. And and there's differences between those manuscripts and the one from Alexandria that most of our Bibles are translated from. They're not major issues. They're not, there's no heresy, but there are differences. And so the King James is based upon about a dozen Greek manuscripts, where your Bibles are based upon hundreds and hundreds. I'm not going to tell you there's 5,800 I mean, 5, manuscripts, but they don't use all 5,800 manuscripts to translate your Bible. They just have the time to do that. But they have gone through them and found what they believe is the best representation and, and done that. And it's several hundred of them as opposed to 12. Did you say, you say that, Mark? Yeah. Why would Pope Leo give rather than the text of the why would Pope Leo do what? You know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. He's asking, why would Pope Leo give Erasmus the publishing rights over Cardinal Zimini's um, 
um, polyglot, which is one of multiple languages. I don't know the answer to that, but so forgive me for being a pessimist. I, I don't know. So what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I never ran that one down. So um, it's a fact of history, though. And, and it wasn't called Texas Receptus for another 70, 80 years, as far as the name Texas Receptus. But it, his, his Bible became known as the received text, the one we all know is the Word of God. Yeah, the Old Testament is not as argued because, because at this point, the Masoretes from the 5th to 10th century had established the text. And, and, and so it, it, is, it, is, it is established and received as the standard text of the Hebrew Bible, and everyone's using it. So there's no, there's no manuscripts being found that are challenging it, um, much less, way less manuscripts for the Hebrew and less intrigue and drama in it. So it's, it's, it's agreed upon. Um, the issue comes with the Septuagint, not the Hebrew. So, all right, so the fifth bullet point, even though it is considered a formal equivalence translation, which is what, by the way? What is formal equivalence? Help me out. We're talking to the New King, hmm? Word for word. So formal equivalence is word for word. What is dynamic equivalence? And where is your Bible? <laughs> Most of you in the room probably have uh, NIV or ESV. Did, did we decide that? Yeah, ESV more word for word, NIV more thought for thought, um, but more in the middle of the spectrum there. So the King James is more word for word, but it, it leaves that sometimes. For instance, when Paul says, you know, when sin abounds, and when Paul says, oh, if sin abounds, grace abounds the more, and he says, maybe we should sin more, right? This is Romans, end of five, chapter six, in the beginning of six. And what does he say? What's his response to his own question? May it never be, which is a direct translation of the Greek. May ginotoi. May it never be. You know, King James does it. God forbid. Now, that is not a word for word. That is a very dynamic translation because they're trying to bring in an expression that, that, that relates to Paul's disgust. May it never be. And so the King James would do that sometimes. Sometimes to, to avoid repetition of words like we looked at the New American Standard, flesh, 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 King James would change them just to, to stop um, um, monotony. But for the most part, it's a word-for-word -word translation. There were to be no marginal notes that expressed theology because of the negative reaction to the Geneva Bible's footnotes and back to Tyndale's. They did insert translational footnotes. So let me show you a page. You blind people in the back, I, I saw you roll your eyes. I saw you roll your eyes just right then. Because you can't, uh-huh. I'm going to make it bigger, but you probably still can't read it. This is, since we're going through the book of Romans, this is the, um, the, the page. And so you can see here, if you can see it, can you see the word Paul? See, they didn't have, they, their U's and V's were different. No, no, ours, they were, actually they were the same. A V was a U. 
So if it was lowercase, it'd be a U, uppercase would be a V. Look at their S's. Yeah, you see up there, the word gospel, it is is looks like an F, but it's an S. And so this, the fonts are different. And, um, but if you see here in the sides, out of there. And besides, it has little footnotes, you know, like here, and, he, and God declared to be the Son of God. He, Jesus declared to be the Son of God. Put over here, Greek is determined. If you were in church Sunday, the, the word predestination, this is the word destination. This is the, without the pre on it. And so they put an option in the, in the, in the, in the, um, the margin. The other one over here, is idea of for the obedience to the faith among the nations or to the obedience of faith. So the King James put notes in there. They were translation notes just to give you the options. They would do the practice of if a word was not in the Greek, but they put it in the English to make sense, they'd put in italics. The New American Standard does that. I believe the King James and New King, the King James does. The New King James does it too, I believe. When you see something italicized, what does it make you think of? Emphasis. And so that, that's a practice that most modern Bibles don't do anymore because when you italicize something, I'm emphasizing it. With the New American Standard, back to the King James would italicize it to tell you, the reader, not in the Greek. We added it. So you're intelligent. Um, now, not that other Bible readers aren't intelligent. You get my point. S-O-N-N-E, yeah. I'm going to take a little... I didn't take a picture of it. I didn't put it on my computer. Pull out this handout. I'll take a break and look at this. This is the title page. And Tina, I thought you'd like this because of your, your love for art. Um, then I put this, I printed this one. The, the picture of the title page is much, it's on the back side of yours. It's much less visible, but it explains every little detail of this. And it's amazing what a picture, you guys have heard the phrase, a picture tells a thousand words? I mean, th this, this is a perfect example of it. Um, up top, so in each four corners, each four corners you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the ones with, this, with the writing tablet in their hand. And next to them are all some animal that represents, uh, represents their gospel. And, and so, um, then up top, you have the 12 apostles. You have the dove, the Holy Spirit. You have Jesus, the lamb, carrying the cross. And you have Yahweh up top in, in Hebrew, the tetra tetra tetragrammaton. You guys see all that? On the sides, to the left is Moses. To the right is Aaron. You can see Moses, the Ten Commandments. You can see Aaron with his umim, umim, thurman, whatever that is, his vest where they did, you know, divining. Then at the bottom is a pelican, which represented the gospel, because evidently the pelican was known to feed its young, its blood. So it became a symbol of the gospel. It's all in the notes there, and it goes on to much, much more. Somebody read what it says, though. Anyone here? She, she volunteered you. Fallen told, yes. Stand up. You stand up and turn around. 
Why not? No, not reused. Believe that that's revised. Sixteen eleven, yeah. And then you know, Mark Mark has a facsimile of it too there. And if you look at the beginning, there's this there's this um, the translators tribute to the king, and it is the epitome of brown nosing. It's unbelievable. Um, well, so so this is a little sidebar just to get understand how important the king is. Have you today? been following at all um, Harry and Meghan's little issues? Yeah, it's, it's, I'm watching the front page news on the internet. I go, why? This is being recorded. They're useless. But in Britain, they are, he's, he's, the, he's the rebel prince. And it's like, why, do we, why does America care? Because we don't have a royal family. And it's just kind of, what a waste of my internet time. But understand the love for them, and I take it back to here. The mon- and this is when the monarchy truly ruled. So the translators were kissing up like you wouldn't believe. But in, then there's about a 20-page introduction called the translator to the readers, where they explain the method they did, why they did it. And in there, it clearly says that this, this translation is imperfect and needs to be revised. And, and this, I just want you to tell you that next time you run into somebody that is King James only, okay? And King James only are very committed to, they'll say, the 1611. The fact is, they don't read the 1611. Most of them, the editions we read today are about 1780 or so. Um, in fact, this little edition we have here, that Mark and I have, costs 20 bucks on Amazon. Grab it. It's a great tool when someone says King James only. They say, here, is this the Bible you read? Because this is the 1611 King James. If we look in our notes here, you keep going down, and it says um, that... Okay, the next bullet point. All the revisers were approved personally by the king, and they were very able scholars. These guys were classical Greek scholars, a lot of them. While the translators were given free room and board, they did the work for free. And the revisers put in very heavy punctuation in the text for the purpose of public, proper public reading, because they wanted it to be pronounced right. Remember, so a lot of people couldn't read. So it became the standard English Bible for 350 years and superseded both the Great Bible and the Bishop's Bible. And, but the Geneva Bible was still used by the people who didn't like the British monarchy. It went through several revisions. The early major ones occurred in 1613, two years later. Over 300 changes were made, 1629, 1638. The need for revisions was in part due to mistakes in printing. Remember, had these guys printed? They had to take tiles for letters and place them in. If you just, yeah, movable type. If you, um, if you oh, oh, the Gutenberg Bible, yeah. If you put a wrong letter in, then you misspelled the word. 
So look at some of the misspellings here. The 1631 was known as the Wicked Bible because it forgot to put not in the seventh commandment. What's the seventh commandment? So the seventh commandment in this Bible, thou shalt commit adultery. And um, so, um, you know, if you could get a hold of one of those today, you, you, you and your entire family for generations are set. Um, the 1770 edition was known as the Vinegar Bible because of the misspelling of the parable of the vineyard in Luke 20. So it's a parable of the vinegar. In 1795 edition was called the Murder's Bible because of the misspelling of filled to killed in Mark 7:27. Let the children first be killed. Um, so, so these are just things that, you know, they, they, they obviously, the publisher did it, the editors didn't catch it. It's sold. If someone reading it catches it, and um, imagine the embarrassment of the printer. So the Cambridge edition of 1762 and the Oxford edition of 1769, spelling was modernized, so it matched common usage, and that's the one we use today. So, um, now the Apocrypha, Protestant movement pushing the concept of sola scriptura, scripture only, and the Apocrypha is not scripture, therefore the scripture, Apocrypha should not be in the Bible. So there's that push to that end. Um, to where it became, if you published a Bible in England and you left the Apocrypha out, it was imprisonment, fine and imprisonment for leaving it out. And you could put it in the back, but you couldn't leave it out. And today, none of our Bibles have them and probably haven't for 150 years is my guess. Doesn't mean that that's Catholic. I mean, King James had it. Yep, King James had it. Yes. The Catholics, the Catholics is a Bible. And in whatever reason, it, it was still d deeply loved. They call it the Apocrypha. Well, if you get your Catholic Bible, it doesn't call it the Apocrypha. It's, no, it's in there. It's called the Bible. But the King James makes it, the Apocrypha sets it apart, and, but keeps it in the same book. It took a long time for it to not to be published part of it. Again, I encourage you all to read it. Um, so, so with that, I have flown through my notes. You want to go home, do you? Oh, good job. I finally got through it. Yes, thank you. So questions, disagreements, confusions. We can go back to any lesson. So all the words ES and the ES and I, they all come from the King James Version? No. So, so the King said, next week we'll, we'll wrap this up. We'll find out next week. I, I didn't think I'd get through this much. In 1881, they abandoned the Texas Receptus. And because all these new manuscripts were being found in the Egyptian desert, uh, that they start basing translations on other manuscripts than the Textus Receptus, which was the 12 manuscripts the King James was based upon. Created great turmoil in, in the scholarly world and emotional for people that you, you, have, you have denied the word of God because you changed some wording. And so from 1880, you get a few translations, a British translation, the, the American Standard Version in 1903-ish, 
and then finally you get the new revised version in the 1950s. Um, and and then, you, then by the time you get to the 70s, 80s, you have New American Standard, the NIV. And, and all of a sudden now it's, it went, went like this, started widening and widening, and now it's like that. And none of those use the Texas Receptus. They all use the older manuscripts found in the late 1800s. Does that answer your question? Some are revisions, some are first translations. Yes. Yes, so as more things are discovered, but it, she said the Bible keeps changing. But really, guys, it doesn't. Get your King James and get an NIV or an ESV and, and do some comparison. Spend the rest of your life comparing them. And you'll find the differences are, are nuances. That they're, not, they're not significant. There's a few that are significant. We'll look at one next week. We already did once, but I think we'll look at this one again. It's, it's more nuances. And, and, um, um, and, and this was important because, as I've suggested to you, let me go up here. Since we have time, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3 again. Second Timothy three. Sure. Let's remind ourselves of Paul's statements to Timothy. Starting verse fourteen. But as for you, guys, there. But as for you, talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The sacred writings that Timothy was raised on from childhood is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the LXX, the Septuagint. So are you with me on that? You know that, right? It's the Old Testament, it's not the New Testament. And to Paul... He believed those led Timothy to salvation. So how do we justify that when Jesus, the New Testament's not published yet, is being written when Timothy or Paul wrote this? How can we say the Old Testament leads Timothy to salvation? Okay, um, Tina said foreshadowing, but let's, let's dig into that more. Okay, so Paul uses Abraham in the Old Testament story to tell you that's the gospel. Believe, trust in God through faith. Remember what, when Jesus rose from the dead in the end of Luke, chapter 24, he's walking to Emmaus, and he runs into two disciples. And they're not named, so we don't, know if, we don't think they're part of the 12. But, but they're not named, two disciples. And they don't recognize them. And they said, and they say, and they're really depressed. I forget the, the beginning of the conversation, but something along the lines of, you know, Jesus says, what's wrong with you guys? And they said, are you the only one that doesn't know what happened? That the Messiah came and they killed him? And so they, they still don't know they're talking to Jesus. And they get to a house. Jesus sits down and explains to them. It says, starts from the law and the prophets and explains how all the scriptures pointed to the death of the Messiah and the resurrection. 
Now they don't know it's Jesus still. Then it's time to eat dinner. And he grabs their loaf of bread and breaks it. And their eyes are opened. And they recognize it's Jesus. So I, I presume Jesus, whether or not he just kept them from recognizing him or whether he is a shapeshifter, I don't know. I don't want to get heretical here. So um, Jesus said all the scriptures point to him. So we, we, um, when we read the Old Testament, we don't tend to look for Jesus. But Paul's saying to Timothy here, your Old Testament led you to faith. So that's why it's still the Word of God. Let's keep reading. So from childhood, they made you wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may complete, equipped for every good work. So here's, here's my point with this chart here. Timothy read a translation in Greek that came from Hebrew copies that were copies of the original manuscripts the Old Testament authors wrote, which were inspired by God and written down and infallible. I suggest to you today, because we still have the Bible Timothy read, and we have now the Hebrew manuscripts that... Um, not the specific manuscripts that were used to translate that Greek, but we have the manuscripts of Hebrew that were representative copies of the manuscripts that were used to translate the Greek. The King James, I would say, is, is probably the least... It's probably not the best representation of the Greek manuscripts that we have today. I'm be careful. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm simply saying the King James only had 12 manuscripts that it used... And we have found much more earlier reliable ones that our Bibles are translated from. So the King James deficiencies in that area are nothing compared to the deficiencies of Timothy's Greek translation. The LXX, the Septuagint, is filled with issues, just filled with differences. But Paul's still calling it the Holy Writings. He's still calling it inspired scripture. So God's primary message is still in the Bible Timothy read. It's in the King James. It's in every Bible you guys read. And, and so that's why I believe you can sit here today and call your Bible the inspired word of God with confidence, even though some of the manuscripts disagree with each other, you know, even though this translation might say something different than that translation, it is still the word of God inspired to lead you to salvation, to train you in righteousness, to equip you for every good deed. That's why we did this class. So, go ahead, Mark. Timothy, right? Mm -hmm. Read LXX. Yes. And why do we read the Masoretic? That's, um, do, do you have a Greek background? Okay. Um, if you were a Greek Christian today, you would not read the, the, the Hebrew Bible, you would read the Greek Bible. So, so your translation today, if you were in the Greek church in Greece, would not come from the Hebrew, it would come from the Greek. And they call it that Septuagint, the inspired word of God. The Hebrew is faulty. Something happened, Mark, in the Western tradition that once the Hebrew manuscripts were shown from the Dead Sea Scrolls, way back, way before Dead Sea Scrolls 1940, but 
the Hebrew manuscripts were seen as more reliable than the LXX in the Western tradition. Um, because, because they would say, hey, a, a, a copy of an original has got to be better than a translation of a copy of an original. But the LXX is closer to the Ezra Nehemiah autograph. Yes, when it was translated. Not necessarily the manuscripts we have today. You follow me? So, so, so get this, we have Ezra Nehemiah, 4th century BC, is what he just said. The LXX translated 250 BC, 250 to 150. In 250 was the, the law, the Pentateuch. Then it took another 100 years for the rest of it. So we're two to 300 removed from Ezra Nehemiah, the last books of the Old Testament. But the copies we have are still hundreds of years later, just like the New Testament. And then here's the problem that the Hebrew scholars would say, Christian Hebrew scholars, was Christians got a hold of them because the Jews used the Septuagint as their Bible. The Jews outside of Palestine used the Septuagint as their Bible until Christianity came along and started using it to argue with them. For instance, Matthew 7, 14, excuse me, Isaiah 7, 14 says that the virgin shall give birth to a child. The Hebrew says Alma, which is, means young woman. But since these guys didn't read, didn't read Hebrew, they read Greek, the Greek translation says Parthenon, Parthenos, which is virgin, it, which, which is more specific than young woman. Well, when the church is using that to argue for Jesus' virgin birth, then the Jews of the second and third century abandoned the Septuagint. And they would argue the Christians changed it. So there's all, all that history there too. Mark, and I, I, I'm not a Septuagint scholar, by default, I say the Masoretic text of the Hebrew is better than the Greek, but it's what I was taught, and I've never challenged it. Um, I have a friend in Reno who's a Greek priest, and he just tells me I'm flat out wrong. <laughs> so, um, no hand back there? Good. All the Orthodox? Yeah, all the orth East, if we call Eastern Orthodox, is all the same family tree. Yes. Change that to what? No, Constantine is early third century, maybe the fourth century, and and there's no. Um, yeah, Constantine wouldn't have been part of any division in the church, of, of the Greek, no. Because the entire church was speaking Greek then. Yeah, um, so, yeah. I'm not sure. So, I, no. <laughs> Randy. Um, you know, the original from Galatians. No cap, yeah. Actually, they're all capitals, yeah. Translators decide. So as it's translated into other languages, then the translators, since punctuation becomes more common in language, the translators will, from their use of, of their modern language punctuation, they'll add it in. And, and it's a, it's a um, translator's choice. So here's what I say to you. Um, your punctuation, your verse divisions, your chapter divisions, are all 
added in after inspiration. And you can change them all. I showed you probably a classic example, I think, didn't I? This is a very good question, Randy, because as you study your Bible, you need to um, really engage your mind. So I can't do two things at once, so just give me a second. Don't laugh at me. Okay, blind people in the back, can you see this? You don't mind if I call you that, do you? Yeah, I know. So, you probably can't see that, can you? So, Ephesians 1, 4, let me read it to you, because you only see the word in love up there, right? Everyone open their translations to Ephesians 1. I want to hear what you're saying. So, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. ESV, Period. Okay, next word. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons of Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Does anyone not have a period in verse 4 after him before in love? What do you have, Randy? Um, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Comma. So, so before him in love. Okay, yours says colon. Right. So that's King James. So the translators are making a choice here. Is love ending the thought of blameless before him? Or is love starting the thought of which he predestined us? Now, now does it change your world? But it changes the emphasis of the text. Paul's making a point about God's love. Either in love he predestined you, or um, you stand before him blameless in love. It's still God's love for you, but the punctuation in the Greek doesn't have it. So you get up here. Let's see if I can pull this up now. Um, just like I showed you the, um, I showed you the apparatus where all the manuscripts are mentioned. I have punctuation apparatus, which will show you all the different ways translations have done it. And, and so, because the translators have a choice to do it. And this is where you can compare translations and say, it makes more sense to me to say, in love goes with being predestined. Which, by the way, I'm going to mention Sunday morning, so I'm going with that one. <laughs> so, so, Randy, I don't know if I answered your question. Sometimes I give way too much information and find out I didn't even answer your question.
Okay. Okay, so, so do you hear what he's saying? Do you know if any translations do that? But let, let's just look at that. Ah, I gotta put my glasses on. Isaiah 51, 19. Okay. Pull it up here. Okay. This is the Net Bible. I'm going to pull up another translation. I think this one does what you want it to do, Randy. Sorry, guys. Let's give me this real quick. People online are checking out already. So you read the New King James, right? Yes. So the ESV, or the ESV says, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Okay? So then, then the NET, for he comes like a rushing stream driven by the wind sent from the Lord. So it's the wind that's the Lord. So what does yours say? See, in these times, they don't even mention the Spirit of the Lord. Oh, here's why. Can, can you tell me why his says Spirit of the Lord, this says the wind of the Lord? Anybody? It's the same word. It's huach. Translators decide, is it talking about the Holy Spirit or is it talking about wind? The ESV and the NET chose wind. New King James chose Spirit. Very Interesting. Because the Amplified is giving you the options, yeah. So again, this is a translator's choice. That's why, folks, you've got to compare translations. And this is the beauty of it. And, and, and so I don't mean to, to insult anyone in this room, because I don't believe this applies to you, because you're here. But as a general rule, we're lazy. Just tell me what I'm supposed to believe. Of course, until I don't like it. <laughs> um, as opposed to, and, and I say this all the time, God gave you a brain, he gave you a Bible, he gave you the Holy Spirit, and he gave you the people of God. So engage the Bible, think through it, talk about it, pray about it, and let's, and let's argue in a sense that is productive. Come to men's Bible study. Scott and I argue all the time in men's Bible study. <laughs> Not all the time, just every once in a while. Yeah. So any other questions? You want to go home early? Is that what you want to do? I don't think I'm, I have to drive to Carson. <laughs> the Masoretic text before after the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Masoretic text, the Dead Sea Scrolls are written 
couple hundred years before Christ into the period of Christ. Discovered in 1949. The Masoretic text is 500 AD to, to 1000. So it's, it is a good five to 700 years after. In the Isaiah scroll, the, the, well, no, not just, just that's the one they did the work on that I'm aware of. When they looked at the Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text from six, seven, eight hundred years later, uh, an overwhelming similarity. That's right. The um, that's what scholars concluded was that the scribal habits of the G Jewish scribes that preceded the Masoretes, then included the Masoretes, were very meticulous. And you can trust, because the manuscript that we had of the Hebrew Bible before Dead Sea Scroll was found was from late 900s to early 10,000s, or you know, turn of the um, first millennium. But it was so close to the 250 BC that they said you can trust it. I'm sure that's one reason why they say choose the Hebrew over the Greek. Yeah. So. Yes, sir. Okay, so you're talking about translators that go all over the world to translate? Like missionaries. Yeah, yeah. They, um, so, but, but what is your question about it? What translation were they using? Oh, I see. As a general rule, Bible translators, like Wycliffe Bible translators, New Tribes Missions, that these people's, go these people's, really good grammar there, these, these missionaries' goal is to get the Bible in, in all the world's languages. They're not Greek and Hebrew scholars. They're linguists. So there's an organization called the Summer Institute of Linguistics. They go there to learn about linguistics. And, to, and you're going to go learn, take English, you're going to learn that language, and you're going to learn how to take your English Bible and put it into that Bible. Now, some of them may be Greek scholars and, or, or Hebrew, but for the most part, they're just well-educated linguists that can go from English to another language. And it's fascinating, and they're almost always extreme um, dynamic equivalent. The, the um, I mean, things like this, what do you think of this? I don't know if I told you this already. I was in Winnemucca in, um, so talking no, 80s. We supported a missionary from Wycliffe up in McDermott, Nevada. Imagine that, a missionary in McDermott that was translating the Bible into Paiute. It took him 10 years to translate the New Testament into Paiute. Then he brought it down to our church and presented it to us because we supported them financially. And in there is, is cartoons. Not, not, not silly cartoons, but drawings of Jesus. And Jesus is a Native American. He's dressed like a Native American, looks like a Native American, because they are trying to take the gospel and, and bring it into a culture that rejects the white Jesus. So they translate not just the words into a way they can understand it, but the pictures where they can understand it. I, I've gone into, when I did foster care, I had a little boy that was African-American, and when I took him to visit his aunt's house, go in. There's a famous picture of Jesus um, with the little children all around him. And of course, the picture, the original picture, Jesus is, 
is dishwater blonde hair, you know. He's European. This one, Jesus is black. The aunt's a black woman. Jesus is black, all the children are black. And it's kind of like, it makes you wonder, how, how far do we go in this dynamic equivalent? Then I was in Bolivia, hold on. Did I tell you about the rock? Did I tell you that story? We dug the outhouse? So I don't know who I tell these things to. I'm getting old, Nikki. Don't laugh at me. The, we were in the jungles of Bolivia and with New Tribes Missions, which is a Bible translating organization, and they just used the jungle for the bathroom. So they were building outhouses. So we dug seven foot holes and, and um, um, big enough to get in with a shovel, so this big round. We dropped in two um, 55 gallon barrels, cut the bottoms off, and then the, put the dirt back around it, then built an outhouse on top of it for the kids to use the outhouse. It took us two hours to dig three seven and a half foot holes, not a single rock. And Howard, the missionary, I said, Howard, we didn't hit a single rock. And he said, Tony, this is Amazon. There are no rocks. He said, the Amazon is the silt of the Andes Mountains, of, you know, eons of time, whatever your view of the age of the earth is. <laughs> um, and so he says, he goes, these people have never seen a rock. He goes, now, how do you translate that God is the rock of the ages? How do you translate to a people who've never seen a sheep that Jesus is the Lamb of God when they sacrifice pigs? Do you say, the pig of God? Exactly, that's what I would do. I said, no! So that, this is the issue of Bible translations throughout the world. How do you bring the Word of God into a culture that doesn't understand the biblical culture? As Americans, we just think everyone knows what we know. This is an interesting question. So, yeah, that's, um, if you've ever been to Peru, they eat guinea pigs. And it's, I was there, I had no way. Ain't doing it. Okay, now we'll stop early. Next week, we'll wrap this up. We'll do some review and wrap this up. If you have an old Bible, old family Bible or something, bring it. If you have any old translation, old family Bible, something that's special to you, Tina has, Tina has Thomas Jefferson's Bible, she'll bring it. Um, I have a Bible from the Civil War that, we'll just bring them and we'll just put them out, just to show you the history of the English Bible, okay? All right, guys, thanks, let's pray. Father, we, we didn't open up with prayer, Lord, but we thank you for the privilege of coming here tonight, of learning, thinking through, um, how you, in your providence, oversaw a process, Father, of today we have these Bibles in our hands so that we can know you, grow in righteousness, and be equipped to be instruments in your hands to do your will. So, Lord, help us to fall in love with reading our Bibles and pursuing you. So We love you. We thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us. In your name we pray. Amen.